Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Welcome back or welcome to another episode of the Growth Equation Podcast. Today, in addition to my usual co-host, great Steve Magnus, we've got Jojo McDuffie back on the show. So how are both you fine gentlemen doing? Doing pretty well, Brad. Thanks for asking. I'm excited about this podcast and uh, diving into the strange world of 2020. Yeah, before we get into that, Jojo, how about a quick update um, for listeners? We were rolling pretty strong with our quick hit weekend podcast where we were exploring principles of peak performance, and then you disappeared. Um, What's going on there, man? Where'd you go? Yeah, so on September 6th, my wife and I welcomed uh, twins to this crazy world. Uh, One boy and one girl. I can officially say I am done with kids. This would be our third one. Um, But yeah, I had to take a little time, you know, spend a little quality time with the family, help with that transition, a little practicing of our uh, zone defense as Brad, uh, you encouraged me to to practice there. So, but um, really excited about today and, and being back on. It's good to have you back, Jojo. Um, it means that you get a free pass for just about anything on this uh, on this show because I can only imagine that you must be operating on um, on very little sleep. And I'm very happy for you, but I don't envy you in that department. Yeah, I, I have. I started to call it uh, sleep interval training. So right now, about two and a half hours of sleep one and a half hour of feeding and then try my best to get right back to sleep so I can get some type of quality sleep in. Basically sounds like the um, the schedule of the Silicon Valley bro science biohackers. So, you know, who knows? Maybe you're actually increasing your longevity, cognitive performance, and God knows what else on your new schedule. Um, so anyways, um, all right. As... Um, as Steve mentioned, 2020 has been a crazy year, uh, particularly here in the United States, but really all over the developed world. We've seen the coronavirus pandemic, which has left all kinds of human and economic destruction in its wake. We've seen some very disconcerting trends in politics and in government institutions. And we've also seen quite a lot of focus and attention on social justice, social injustice, particularly as it relates to race. So before JoJo's uh, bomb of two beautiful little humans came into the world, he and I would spend, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes off the record after our quick hit podcast uh, talking about race. White dude, black dude, and good friends that had some confidence and trust to just be open and non-judgmental and not be scared to to talk about this difficult topic. And um, Jojo said, "Hey, man, like we got to hop on the show and do this stat because maybe this is the kind of conversation that so many people want to have or want to listen in on, but they don't feel comfortable to do it." So we were all set up to record, and then Jojo texted me and said. Dude, like the only race I'm in is the race to the hospital, man. Um, postpone, <laughs> postpone. Um, 
So the good news is that we were able to connive Steve to join us uh, in the last month. And um, now the three of us do want to dive into this really important topic. Um, So I think to kick it off, guys, how about just like two minutes on how you approach this topic? And what I mean by that is maybe a little bit on how you grew up. Um, both like the community that we were all in and how we grew up thinking about race, because I think that probably shapes a lot of where we are at right now. So I don't know. Jojo, you can kick off. Yeah, so I I grew up in Virginia Beach, Virginia, a very, very diverse community. Uh, In fact, my high school was 30% white, black, and Filipino. Um, So just a very... um, Melting pot, ethnic backgrounds, everybody kind of in it all together, huge military town. So, um, yeah, we thought about race, but I, I think we all appreciated the culture and ethnic differences that were around us. Uh, one of my best friends in high school was Filipino, and I just loved hanging out at his house. His uncles and aunties would come over and they would have Ponsid and Lumpia. And, you know, I was always a part of the family, uh, even though I, I look different. Um, and so that that's kind of how I grew up in this melting pot of this is a community. Everybody's in this thing together, come over, eat fellowship. And that happened all the time. So it was it was awesome for me. So what I see today is just bunch of crazy shit happening oh man um so i grew up in the suburbs of houston texas um which was interesting i think in my view i mean i grew up in again upper middle class suburbs of houston houston itself is extremely diverse the suburbs are depending where you are at are a little different um my exposure to race really came in sports I would say growing up playing soccer and then eventually track every team I was a part of uh, was way more of a diverse mixture than I would say, you know, uh, anywhere else I was exposed to, especially on the cross country and track team. You know, I think back to my days and, and what really kind of centered me on, on this culture race idea is that, Half about half of our team, my cross country team was Hispanic, and then we had a smattering of of every every other kind of race, um, from Native American Indians to um, you know Asians to you know we had a <coughs> people from all over, and it was it was very formative um, in that sense because we were all united under this team dynamic. So we really didn't pay too much attention to race until we left that team dynamic. And you would see the separate separation and segmentation in the school at large. So in a lot of ways, and I know I've written about this and talked about this with you, Brad, but I'm very thankful for sport for like putting me in that situation that I, I think expanded my, um, my boundaries more more so than just kind of living in the su- suburban life. Yeah, I had a, a similar experience to you, Steve. I grew up in suburban Detroit, but suburban enough where I was outside of Detroit <laughs> itself. And um, 
I was a decent athlete and there weren't that many decent athletes in the suburbs of Detroit. So starting in seventh grade, I started playing AAU basketball um, on a team that was largely filled out of Detroit. And I was one of two white guys on the roster. Um, So when people talk about being colorblind, man, at that age, I'm like, what are you talking about colorblind? Like, I'm white. No one else around me is. Uh, but because it's sport, man, like it's a family and those are your brothers regardless of your skin color. So I, I think it, in a way it taught me to be both aware that colorblindness doesn't exist because there are just different colors on skin, but also that the color of one's skin doesn't really mean anything for who that they are as a person. And, um, I remember, um, really like having a formative experience, in eighth grade, we were playing in one of these summer classic tournaments where you've got, I don't know, 16 games in two days. And we're playing a team from uh, from Pinckney, which is like, you know, uh, a very much uh, rural area in Michigan. And they, um, they started calling guys on the team the N-word. And I don't want to say it on the podcast because I'm not comfortable saying it on the podcast, but it led to like a bench clearing brawl. And I just remember being filled with anger and just going after these guys, getting kicked out of the game um, because, like, oh, how hurtful that is to my teammates. So for me, that was a really transformative experience. Um, so yeah, I, I, I guess that very similar to Steve, like, I come up with with integration through sport, which is perhaps part of the problem that there wasn't in my suburb. You know, there weren't that many black people, and um, and I think that is probably part of the problem. So, so one thing that that reminded me of is a very again formative experience in high school. This kind of similar to yours, Brad. Um, only only slightly different in the sense that, as I said, we had a very diverse cross country and track team, and after the season was finished, a lot of times we we just kind of play you know, pick up soccer or whatever during our athletic period because we have athletic periods in Texas, right? And I remember this this experience pretty distinctly as we were playing soccer. One of the Hispanic kids on the team um, said something that, you know, um, said something, I don't want to repeat it, but was like derogatory to his own race, essentially, in a joking manner, um, almost self-referential. And one of the vice principals was walking by and heard it and like stopped everything. Um, His reaction was to tell us that we were all having the entire team now was going to have racial sensitivity training uh, the next day. So that's what happened. We show up to practice. We do this instead. And I remember it pretty distinctly because another Hispanic kid on the team uh, before the training started stands up and asks, can I ask why we're getting this when we're all connected in a family and, and like have each other's back and like all of this stuff and interact. But the moment we walk in the school, you can see clear divisions based on racial, you know, racial lines to a large degree when you look at the lunch tables and where people are hanging out in the hallways. 
And out here, we're all just kind of doing our thing. And, you know, that that point really kind of stuck with me at that point. And I think it's something similar that you you just mentioned there, Brad, in the sense that I think that is part of the problem and that sports tends to be where we kind of naturally integrate. But at least way back in the time when I was in high school, it wasn't as clear cut in in the greater world if you didn't have sports to kind of bring that together. Yeah. So I want to, I want to um, talk about a few things here. There's so much to unpack. So, you know, let's, let's throw out some terms, right? There's race, there's racism that is just blunt and clear. The use of the N word, the not giving someone an opportunity because the color of their skin. There's systemic racism. There's this term anti-racism, which has just been introduced. And then there's this term like race culture. And Jojo, you know, being the black guy in this conversation, I'm curious to hear what those terms mean to you. And also, when in your life did you kind of like start to feel or understand that, hey, some people might think I'm different because the color of my skin? Or have you not felt that? Dude, you just threw me a softball pitch. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, so this is the, the topic of race and racism. This is one of the things that when you're having conversations with people, it it irks me and it, it pisses me off for the simple fact that the concept of race is it's fictional. It's a it's a social invention. I mean, the concept of racism exists because of the word race. You know, when when you come around a race, it's all about keeping a group of people down because of the color of their skin, right? And you look at their color of skin, and then you have this perception of their attitude is different. Their intellectual ability is, is different. Or, you know, we are unequal. I'm a black guy, you two white guys, and we are unequal because of the color of our skin. And I mean, that, that dates back to like the 17th century or something like that, where it was designed to put people into groups. Um, and I think this concept of race and race culture is what we're really looking at. Uh, established beliefs based off what people look like. I think that's, to me, that's why we're in the shit we're in right now. Because we put people into categories based off the color of their skin. Um, you know, everybody quotes Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King Jr. And the, and the content of your character because we put people in these groups because of the color of their skin, that's why things happen right now. People believe that I should think, look, and act a certain way because I am black. And that could be further from the truth, right? So I really, again, I told you guys I, I grew up in Virginia Beach, Virginia, very diverse. Even, even where I lived, I lived in a... I, I guess you would call it like more of an upper middle class, if that's such a thing. Um, neighborhood, my dad was uh, an officer in the military. Um, surrounding us, we had some lower income um, neighborhoods. 
but very diverse. We were all in the same. We all went to public school. Very few of us in my neighborhood went to a private school. So we were all in this thing together. Um, I really didn't think about race. Only time I really considered race was probably Black History Month. <laughs> and then, you know, we would have conversations at our house about race. But where this concept of, of race and racism actually hit me the hardest is when I got to college. Right. And so I am out of my safe zone of my neighborhood or my community in Virginia Beach. And now I'm in a small college town and you have people coming from, you know, different areas of Virginia, which if you've never been to Virginia, you could go 20 minutes this way, 30 minutes that way. And it's a completely different culture. Um, And so when I got to college, there were people on my football team who had never interacted with a black person. And that was like complete shock to me. There were white females who had never seen a black man before. And so their thought process or what they perceived a black man to be would be what they saw on TV or what they may have saw in the news or maybe what their family and friends believed black people to be. Um, And so when I got to college, it was such a huge culture shock. And I found myself asking, why? Why do you perceive me to be this way? Um, And it, it actually got so bad, guys, to where myself and my best friend in college, we were like, man, I can't do this. We went to the library and got on a computer and started researching all the historical black colleges and universities in the country because We wanted to get the hell up out of there. We didn't know what was going on. And honestly, the only thing that held us back at that time was probably the insane application fees. Um, But we stuck it out. But, yeah, we were we were looking to go to HBCUs because we felt like we would be accepted by the people who looked like us. Jojo, can you give like a couple of specific examples um, for like what what those instances were like when you were made to feel unwanted? Oh yeah, um, walking to the the dining hall down the sidewalk. Uh, you're about 30, 40 feet from uh, a, a white female, and as she recognizes, oh man, that's a black male walking towards me. She immediately crosses the street. And with a sense of urgency, without even looking uh, in both directions. So that's that's one instance. Uh, Instances of, you know, police officers coming um, to the dorm rooms based off the fact that someone complained that there was um, a black male in my dorm hall. Um, Man, so so many other things or or having having an organization on campus uh, that is predominantly black, uh, intended to make black people feel more welcome on the campus, uh, does not get proper appropriation fees to help their organization continue. While other organizations are getting $150, $250, $300, the black organization is given a check for $50. You know, things, things like that. Um, 
and I've and I've had some friends who've had some even even crazier instances. Uh, the the one that stuck out with me that directly relates to kind of you know black versus uh, police culture was we were driving uh, to Northern Virginia one night, uh, actually during the day, I should say during the day, uh, in a black Honda Civic. We see the uh, highway trooper pull off, turns on his lights, and immediately we're like, "Oh shit!" Right? So all are already. You know, hair sticking up on our arms. We see that he pulls over a purple Dodge Intrepid. And if it sounds like I'm being very specific, it is because this is exactly how I remember it. That Dodge Intrepid had an older white female in it. Cop pulls her over and then immediately swerves back in and comes after the uh, black Honda Accord, which uh, Honda Civic, which I was in, uh, along with two other black males. Pulls us over, gives us a hard time. When he realizes that we weren't doing anything, he decides he wants to write us a ticket because our windows were in illegal tent. Now, if you have three black males riding in a car that has an illegal tent, how do you know that there are three black males in a car? So he says to us, I pulled you guys over because I, I saw all of you in the car. Or well, excuse me, I, I pulled you guys over because you were speeding. And we said, well, you just pulled over that Dodge and trap it. And he says, I pulled over the wrong car. I knew that this was the right one because when you passed and you were speeding, I saw three black males in the car. Like, how how does that happen? Man, so then, like... How do you, what's your mental health during this period of time? And how do you keep going forward? Is this stuff that you share with your parents, with other people? Because I think what often happens in, in part of this is perhaps how black men are portrayed in pop culture is that there's like a thought that like black guys are tough. Like black guys don't get depressed. Black guys don't experience anxiety. It's almost like, you know, talk about a way to dehumanize someone. Um, what was your emotional state and how did you work your way through, through these experiences? Yeah. So when, when you don't go through your entire life experiencing this, you know, racism, you get a sense that, that was a one-off, right? It is only until it continues to happen that you see it as a problem. Now, part of that is that, um, and I, this is a, a problem that, that, that I have, is that we don't talk enough about our, our feelings. Um, it's a stereotype, but there's truth to some stereotypes, right? Uh, that black men don't talk enough about their experiences, their feelings and things like that. And that's something over the past couple of years that I've, I've been very open about and, and talking about those things um, because it, it helps me. If you keep all of that energy pent up in you, bad things typically happen, right? You, you, you explode. It becomes too much for you. Um, and so when that particular instance, instant happened, I didn't say anything to my parents. We all kind of kept it in our circle, right? Um, anytime these things would happen, we kept it in our circle amongst our group. Um, and the thought was no one understands what we go through 
unlike this group, our, our group of peers, right? Um, and things would get out when stuff would happen to my teammates, uh, my teammates, and if they had a white counterpart or white friend with them, that's when things would get out. I was like, guys, you would never believe what happened when I was with JoJo. You know, this would be a white friend saying this about, you know, his black friend. And people are like, really? That happened? That's crazy. I can't believe that happened or whatnot. Um, but I think a big part of this is that, you know, we, we, we haven't done an awesome job of speaking out about it. We've kept it within our group, uh, within our circle, within our friends. And I think that is what is different today. Uh, people are more open about it, you know. When I was in college, I think social media, um, excuse me, I think Facebook was just coming about. So, you know, you weren't posting to, to Facebook, you weren't posting to Instagram or Twitter or anything like that. Now we all feel extremely comfortable about putting it out there and then calling people on their their bullshit when they may question our experiences. That's that's fascinating to hear, Jojo. I'm I'm just wondering, like, you know, for yourself growing up not experiencing it, and and then you just said in there that you had to experience it more than once to just not just kind of brush it off. And I think you know one of the things I'm worried about is that yes, we're getting more people talking, we're getting more people. Um, expressing like yourself, telling the, you know, the details, the ins and outs of what it's like. But how do we get to the point with people hearing it and not brushing it off? Yeah, that's, that's a good one. And I, I I think it's that, that difference when we, when we talk about the, the, growth equation principles, that's the difference between sympathy versus empathy, right? So, you know, sorry for your loss versus I really feel your pain or I can imagine that how do we change? You know, you can, we're, we're, most people are tired of sympathy. I think we're past that part of, you know, wanting the sympathy. I want you to actually feel and see what I'm going through because Maybe now you can understand and maybe now you um, maybe now you believe what I am saying. And I just been general uh, statement there. Um, You know, I think a part of it is we have to understand that we all do come from different backgrounds. Right. Um, And I think in sometimes having these conversations, people People want you to believe that they are unbiased. But I, I think it's really important, especially when we're having these conversations, that we we work to be consciously biased. Right. We, we have to recognize and acknowledge our position, our point of views, our perspectives, where we come from culturally, you know, good, bad or indifferent and use that information to. Because that information basically informs us of, of our thinking, our why. And so I, I like to think of it as if we can understand our, our, our conscious bias, we can then 
if we approach that black man that's walking down a sidewalk, we have to ask ourselves, like, how do I know what I think I know about this person I've never interacted with? And like, why do I feel this way? Um, and then and then recognize that and say, you know what, I, I may be a little bit off here. Um, and I, I think that's where it starts with just like actually admitting, admitting that we do have some conscious biases based off our experiences. And also that that they are, as you said earlier, they're completely socially constructed. Like race is every bit as biological as having red hair. And it's not like you are walking down the street and see someone with red hair and say, oh, I got to get to the other side or oh, I can't look that person in the eye that have red hair. So it is completely social. And what I'm hearing you say is that it takes time to deprogram that and to admit that it's happening. And I think this is like a nice segue into to unpacking some of these terms that have just been thrown around in the news recently. So there's like overt racism, which I think we can all agree on is very simple. That is somebody just being cruel to you because the color of your skin. Then there's this broad category of systemic racism. And I would put the person that doesn't mean any harm, but that like, you know, the the woman that goes to the other side of the sidewalk urgently when she sees you. I'd put that in systemic racism, meaning like she's not trying to be racist. She might not even know she's being racist, but what she's doing is clearly freaking racist. Um, I'm curious if you guys agree. And then if so, like, how do we talk about undoing that? And that's just one example, right? There's like this study that um, I recently came across that is so heartbreaking that shows that black newborns are three times as likely to die when they're being treated by a white physician than when they're being treated by a black physician. And it's not because white physicians aren't as good of doctors as black physicians or black physicians have this special magic for black babies. It's not because these white doctors mean harm. It's because these white doctors are making subconscious decisions that they're not even aware of that deliver a different quality of care to the black babies. Um, so to me, like the person jumping across the street in this study, those are both examples of the same thing. And when people say systemic racism doesn't exist, um, I just like it, it boggles my mind. But I also want to see the perspective of someone that might say it doesn't exist. So I don't know. I just throw out a lot to unpack. I'm, I'm curious what you guys, how you guys respond to that. So I, I point flat out think just anything that has race involved with it is bad. Um, I look at systemic racism as the beginning of the bad simply because it was, it was established. It's, it's very form of existence is a structure of inequality. Like that, that's the basis of race and why we have this term race, right? It's, I mean, we got to think about this in, a, in the simplest form. Like you are, black people are being judged by the color of their skin, which they have absolutely no control over. Like when you lay eyes on me, 
I already have a strike against me for something I can't control. I can be the nicest person in the world willing to give you the shirt off my back. But because I look different, my skin complexion, my melanin is popping, I have a strike against me. But I think it all starts with systemic racism. And so I will put that at the at the forefront. You know, that that gets everything started. So then what do you guys say to someone that says, because I've, I, I've had this conversation and I think there are a lot of well-meaning Americans that would say, well, I don't feel that way when I look at you, Jojo. Systemic racism is not real. Like, I don't look at you any different. Um, because I think that it, like, systemic racism tends to put white people on the defensive. And the excuses that are often given are, are just what I said. And, and Steve, it looks like you want to pipe in here, too. I know it's something that you and I have talked about because we've got family members that are like, oh, systemic racism is not real. Like, I'm not racist. Y- yeah, I mean... <laughs> I'm a science type person, so I tend to go there. But I think I think what Jojo said there is that systemic racism is a start. And I like the distinction that you made, Brad, about um, racism versus systemic racism. And I, I tend to look at it from the science side of s- the start is a subconscious bias. So when, when people say, oh, I don't think that, I don't feel that way. It's a subconscious bias. If you look at the research, it's literally, there's all sorts of research around this that shows that because of, again, social environments where, where you know, we grow up in, because of social um, almost cueing of, you know, stereotyping black people, for example, a lot of us have this subconscious bias where if in a research study they flash faces that are black we will judge them and in a different way largely subconsciously than we would if they flashed you know research or faces of of someone who's white to us there's some interesting studies that come out of stanford that show this very clearly on judging threats or judging whether a person is holding a, a gun or a banana like the the our subconscious will bias us towards seeing again largely black people if we're white in an, in a negative view or seeing that they're holding a gun and not a banana we'll make that mistake more often and i know that might seem like very trivial thing but that is the start of the systemic racism that we're talking about is this this bias that like starts off subconscious and then <laughs> for some people moves to this conscious threat thing. And I think, again, if you look at the research, it's very simple in the sense that the area that you see this bias occur, right, is the amygdala, which is our threat kind of sensing organism in the brain or, or not organism, our threat sensing area in the brain. And sometimes that amygdala lighting up doesn't, you know, doesn't register to some conscious, okay, I feel this way, right? It's just something that is is there. And for others, for we'll call it people who make that unfortunate jump to racism, like it's obvious in it, it correlates to an action that is racist. So I think when people say, oh man, like I don't think that way, 
I think you have to step back, and I don't know how you get this across, but systemic racism, the start, is no, it's, it's it has nothing to do with thinking. It has something to do with this is the world that you see. This is the world that, again, stereotypes and, and you know, news and whatever has almost ingrained in you and the, the, the way you're consuming information so that you perceive this world this way. And it has nothing to do with thinking. It's a subconscious bias that starts. Now, whether that jumps to overt racism is something that you can control. Um, and if it's a subconscious bias, I look at it as any other subconscious bias that we have that we can also influence it and actively dampen down or get rid of it, but it takes actual work to do so. Yeah. And it, and it happens on both the individual and the like institutional level. And, uh, before we get into that, and I want to start with focus on individual because we're all individuals here, we talk to individuals. I do just think it's worth giving a couple of examples because we might have some listeners out there that are still of the mindset that systemic racism isn't real. It's the wrong way to think about things. Again, this doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It doesn't mean that you're even wrong. Maybe you just define it differently. But there's those examples that I gave earlier. There is the difference between how the crack epidemic was treated with how the opioid epidemic has been treated. The former was an enormous criminal uprising where tons of black men were jailed. The latter has led to a much needed emphasis on treating addiction as a disease. There is the thought that some white people have that, oh, well, it's black culture. Have you ever listened to rap music? Yeah, rap music, very violent. You know what else is violent? Marilyn Manson. There is plenty of white kid music that is equally as violent. So no, black people don't have a monopoly on violence in their music. And the difference is that when it tends to affect black people, the culture assumes it's something with that set of people not that it's their problem and it's a culture that's creating this. Now, is this to say that there aren't black people that are criminals? Of course, there are black people that are criminals, but not at any higher internal inherent rate than, than white people. So these are all examples of what we mean, I think at least the three of us, by systemic racism. So if we can agree on that, and if listeners, you're following and staying with us, how do we undo it at the individual level? Um, so Steve, maybe like let's start with you and I, the white guys here, because we're the ones that have had to put in the work to do this. And then Jojo, let's jump to you, because I know that you have tons of experience working with the local police department where you live. Um, so Steve, like talk to me about how you might think about some of your own bias, how you undo that, and your experience with that. Sure. I, I think the way I, I, I handle it is um, twofold. I would say, or threefold maybe, it, it's first exposure, right? I want to make sure that I am exposed to a diverse group of friends, colleagues, etc. But I think that doesn't go far enough. It's not just exposure. It's the ability to have those conversations, uh, with those individuals. So, 
and there are a lot of times uncomfortable conversations to have, but intentionally having those and understanding their experiences um, and understanding where they're coming from. And I do this both on a, a learning from younger athletes, right? My athletes who come from, again, a variety of backgrounds, we have these conversations. And then close friends who I can go in depth with on what it's like and what I might be missing. Because to me, I'm trying to um, fill in those gaps and then reformulate the way that I see the world against my conscious bias of growing up again, upper middle class, suburban, you know, lifestyle that I grew up in and was, was used to and accustomed to. Now, I'm fortunate in that this is a very easy thing to do. And again, Houston, Texas, working at one of the, I think it was like the second or third most diverse universities in, in, in the country. It's easy to surround myself and have those conversations. But I think that is number one. And then the other part of that is like, being able to step back and in, in using that information to reflect on where where my thinking might be wrong or where my bias might be wrong and catching myself when I might have those thoughts and ask, why am I doing that? And again, you know, Brad, you and I have had this conversation a lot. You know, I've for most of my time in Houston, I live smack down in the middle of the city um, and I can either run in one direction, which is the park, right? Or I can run in the other direction, which is what's called the third ward, which is doesn't have the best reputation in terms of crime, but it's also somewhere that I run all the time. So I have these feelings of sensations of like, oh, is this safe? Oh, am I hyper aware in here? Oh, when I see another person walk walking down the sidewalk, am I like, what is my... What does that feeling feel like? And then what am I going to do? And I think like sitting there thinking it through and asking like, how am I acting and how am I responding? And is this because of some innate bias or is this because of something that like has validity is something that sometimes it does have validity. Like again, whether white or black, like if you're running through an area with a super high crime rate, then you have a right to be more nervous if there's actually a super high crime rate, not if it's just a perception. Right, exactly. And those those are things that, again, I think there's a lot of nuance in here. And I think that's where it is. It, it is like you can take that to the, ex- the extreme, right? Again, un- the university is in the third ward. It's surrounded by um, areas that, you know, as I stated. But like a high degree of times, it, we're incredibly safe, right? But it, it it's like having that bias, whether it's like really towards the, the like crime rate or is it because of this internal bias that I think is something that like is worth evaluating, perceiving and like digging into yourself to understand where you're at. Yeah, I have the same exact experience. Um, I mean, the only like little things that I would add are the importance of not judging yourself as a white person for having that like initial feeling because that's like the key to undoing it. You have to be aware of it. So it's not like, ooh, like I'm getting a little nervous. Am I getting nervous because I'm going into a black area or am I getting nervous because there's actually a high crime rate? If you just deny that you're even having that feeling, well, then you're more a part of the problem than if you're like, oh man, I'm having this feeling 
for no other reason than this is how I was socialized. And now I can challenge it and I can be aware of it and I can work with it. Um, and that I think is really, really, really important versus just denying it. It's like the analogy that I have, it's like the people that are like, oh, I never need therapy. I would never benefit from therapy. Those tend to be the people that probably need therapy the most. So it's the person that's, I've never been racist in my life. I've never done any racist acts, subconscious or conscious. It's like, well, like no one's so perfect, man. Like what, what's really going on? Um, and then the second thing that I would add around exposure is the importance of having friendships. And this is what Steve, for you and I, sport and for Jojo with meeting white people, what sport has been so good about is that if you forge a tight bond on something other than race, then it's much easier to talk about race. If the epitome, like if our whole relationship, Jojo, was like just based on the fact that you're black and I'm white, my guess is we wouldn't be able to have the vulnerable conversations that we have. It's because we have this foundation of interest in mental health and being young dads in performance. And like race is just a byproduct and it's something that matters. So we talk about it. Um, so it's about like having, a, and I think, oh man, there's so much to unpack here. One of my fears, and I'm curious again, what, what both you guys think is that when race becomes so dominant, then everything just becomes about race. And it's such a freaking hard, fine line to thread to like not pretend it doesn't exist, but not to make it the only thing. Um, all right. So Jojo, I threw you a softball earlier. Now I feel like I'm throwing you like knuckleballs and curveballs because it's a 19 part question. Um, the first part, tell us about your work with the local police, because there was one night when I texted you, I'm like, I'm just so sorry, Jojo, like, fuck the police. And your response was like, not so fast, Brad. Like I work with some cops and they're great dudes. Um, so why don't you tell us about that? And then yeah. let's table this question about like the Ibram Kendi anti-racism. Is it yeah. good? Is it over the top? Yada, yada, yada. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the start off, I, I will say this. Um, and uh, a few years back, I lost one of my best friends. Um, we met in college. He was a police officer in Prince George County. Uh, and he died in the line of duty. He was actually shot by another police officer. He pulled up to the scene as an undercover officer and the officer that shot him did not recognize him. So if if there's anyone out there who could be really pissed off at police in general, it it would be me. Okay. Uh, In fact, my son's middle name is uh, from my, my good friend in college, Jakai. Um, and so, as I said, if anyone could be pissed off with police, it would be me. But what I've tried to do is to not lump all police into one particular bubble. You know, they're not all bad cops. I have had the pleasure of working directly with police officers, um, training police officers, uh, strength programs, get them ready for uh, boot camp, uh, get them ready to go to uh, FBI, excuse me, the academy or the FBI academy um, and building those relationships with them, which has led to further relationships uh, with police in the community. In fact, before COVID came around, we were working on a plan to where uh, myself and my business partner would be responsible for designing fitness programs and nutrition programs uh, for the local police. Um, 
And for me, that's very, very important because, again, I'm, I am a holistic coach. Um, it's mind, body, and, and, and spirit. I want the whole package. And the reason why I wanted to work with police officers is that would be the start. But I, I think in general, some of our serv- service men and women are being underserved, uh, meaning there's not the right funding put towards their training, um, not just their physical training, but also their mental training. They are human beings just like us, and they go through shit just like us. And so I made it a point to kind of reach out and say, how can I help um, get you guys back on the right track? Because if physically you are broken, mentally you will start to break down, and then things just really start to go downhill. And as we know from being performance coaches, your performance will suffer heavily when you have all these things on your mind. And so that, that was a big part for me. Um, when, um, when I was in college, I worked with police officers in helping give back to the community in a way of whether it's food for Thanksgiving, whether it's um, uh, angel tree donations for, for Christmas gifts for these uh, kids in the community, bringing the police officers out to our uh, community day events. And and for me, it's always been that the police officers are a part of our community. In some cases, they are our direct neighbor. And we have to learn how to take care of each other. And one of the things that you guys mentioned and both of you said was exposure. Like in, in, in some cases, I look at myself as an individual who can help expose others who have not, not to use the word again, but exposed to black people by let them see, yeah, you see the color of my skin, but let's, let's talk and we can get to know each other. And we then realize like, there's not much difference between us, right? The only thing that's different is the color of our skin, which again, neither one of us can help. Like between the three of us, our values You know, our beliefs, our religion, hell, the food that we eat, it can be exactly the same. So why in the hell would we let the color of someone's skin be the thing that keeps us from having a conversation like this? We mentioned sport. Just think, remember the Titans. That's like the perfect example of exposure. Being on a team, you've got racism happening school starts back up you guys have been through the mud together like i always said sports is what really brings people together because when you sweat and you bleed especially through two a day three a day camps you find out something about that person it's like man this dude this woman you know they've got my back and so when they integrate it into the school to actually classes like the white players still didn't realize like they didn't realize that they were in the same situation at one point in time that their peers uh, are currently in or that their white peers were in when, when classes actually started. And so you still have to recognize, like, I am here today, but I had to learn to to leave that other stuff behind because it, it wasn't true. It was all a false narrative. But man, sports, I'm telling you, sports is that thing that really brings us together. Same thing with the military. Like, it's just something about going through some shit with people that just say, yeah, that's my dog. <laughs> you know, that's 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 my man. That's that's my girl. And, you know, to all the parents out there, if you if you're against getting your kids in sports, 
Like, think about that one again, because it really changes their mind. It changes the parents' mind and perspective of what different cultures are, are really like. Yeah, I I hear that, Jojo. I So if I'm playing like, um, I don't know, devil's advocate's not the right word. How about this? If I'm playing like woke white guy in 2020, <laughs> which sometimes I play, I think someone would say like, well, you shouldn't have to have the burden of feeling like your job is to like do exposure. You should just be able to exist in the world as a human being. What would you say? To, and that's something that I've heard a lot of. What would you say to that person? Yeah, it's, it's less about being my job, but more about me being willing to have a conversation and not getting annoyed with the Brads and the Steves or the woke white guys of the world when they ask me these questions or they want to relate more to me. Because that's the side of it that I've seen as well, where, you know, my peers may come up to another group of people and they're asking the questions, well, why is this this way? Or well, what are your thoughts about this? And the response can be, Why do you even care? And that's unfair, right? That's unfair to those who are trying to be our our allies. Um, And so, like, it's it's less about it being my job, more about me being open to having the conversation to anyone who would ask. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I mean, from my perspective, Jojo, I appreciate that. And, you know, Brad, I hadn't thought about that a lot, but it is. It's like, what is the uh, responsibility or why should we put that burden on you? But, like, the good friends that I've had through the years have kind of um, taken it just like Jojo had. And I think when I've had these conversations, and Jojo just mentioned, remember the Titans and the value of sport, but a lot of it has been related to sport. You know, it's in the locker rooms, like I mentioned at the very beginning. It's on runs. You know, one of my good friends um, who is uh, Haitian, uh, Moses Joseph, who is also Olympian. Like, I can't tell you how many times we've had, we had similar conversations on the run during grad school um, on these topics now a decade ago. And I think there's something to the fact that... Um, whether it's it's sports or military or whatever, something that allows us to be vulnerable to see that we're human beings all struggling and 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 making our way through pain, fatigue, discomfort, et cetera, together, allows us to create that space and that trust where we can do that. And I'm just, you know, well, we can, well, three guys who love and played sports can can talk about this all day. I'm wondering though, what is like, how do we get that, that and I'm not saying that sports is the the key and the only answer here, but how do we get that out in the the world? How do we get right. get that to translate to you know the everyday person who doesn't like get stuck in that environment where they're you know <laughs> two day camps or running intervals and then they're they're finally allowed to or able to open up? Yeah, and that's such a good segue into this other thing that I wanted to talk about because I think that like, okay, so as you were saying that, Steve, of course, we're on the same page. I'm thinking the same thing. And then I'm like, all right, so other areas where this happens that aren't sport probably happens in like a 12-step AA program where you got black guys and white guys or or black women and white women. Probably happens in group therapy. Um, Probably happens in... 
I'd hope it would happen in like, you know, companies where you've got two co-founders, one black, one white. But the common link is that they are episodes where you are connecting on a deeply human level. And because, unfortunately, race exists and racism exists, it takes that deep human connection to unwind some of these biases. Because again, I can, I can, I in, 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 you know, I've had a lot of work at this through sport, through support groups, through all these things, and I still have moments when my subconscious biases flare. But I don't need to go on the gridiron with a redheaded guy. I don't need to be in a support group for depression, anxiety with a redheaded guy. But man, having those experiences with black people have really, really helped undo that subconscious bias that I grew up in a culture that has. So, man, sorry, guys, I'm so long-winded today. That is all context for the next thing that I think is worth discussing, which is if what we're saying is that the way that you get beyond this is transcendent and connect on a human level, well, then what does that have to say for like the Ibram Kendi school of thought that everything's about race always? And I feel like there's such paradox here because if you ignore race, then you're full of it. Race exists. It's impossible to be colorblind. But if you make everything about race always, then how do you transcend it in these settings that we're talking about? Yeah. So Um, if either of you guys can answer the question, you've got probably a $4 million book deal. So go for it. No, but I, but I, I go back to something that that I said earlier of, of race being a social invention. Like when we talk about race, we talk about race in terms of culture. We say that because you are black, you believe this, you like this style of art, you have these certain languages and social expectations. When we talk about race, we are t- we are talking about culture as it relates to someone's skin color. Like that's. I think that's where the biggest disconnect is. We believe because you are, because I am black, I should have a certain attitude, you know, that is different from Brad and Steve's attitude. And that's not the case. If you take Jojo McDuffie and you send me to, I don't know, you know, farm country somewhere, like I am going to assimilate to that culture. And if I were to go to Virginia Beach, Virginia, and I'm walking around, everybody's going to be like, wow, that's a different black dude. Well, yeah, because my thoughts and my ideas have been shaped from a culture that I have been a part of for a very long time. And I think that's what we we missed the point on is that we keep saying race as culture, but they, they are different things. So I'm going to like press because it's a half answer. And again, we might not have a full answer. I certainly don't. But I I do want to like pull on this thread where there's this whole school of thought, critical race theory, really made popular by Ibram Kendi's book, um, How to Be an Anti-Racist. I thought there's a lot in that book that's good. I thought there's some in that book that I disagree with. The point of a good book is to wrestle with it. I think what most people would say and maybe even Ibram Kendi, certainly a lot of his theory is that everything is about race. And if you ignore that, then you're ignoring systemic racism. Even if that's true, which I don't entirely think it's true, I think a lot of things are about race, but not everything. But even if it were true, then doesn't that kind of like preclude the healing that comes? Because all of the examples that we've talked about, where there's true deep ponds, 
it transcends race and it's not because of race. It's because of shared interest, shared love in other things, going through hard things together. But if everything is always about race and that's now the only thing that you see, then I think that's problematic. So you can't like pretend to be colorblind, but if it becomes the only thing that you see, then how are you ever going to get by it? Man, that's that's a lot to wrestle with there. Um, and and you know, as we've had these conversations, Brad, I feel feel the same uh, to a large degree in the sense that these are really complicated things. And I think it, when we go, it's almost like as we go, if we go too far to either extreme, we're in a bad spot. And that's just a ge- general rule of thumb. But I think of it another way to think of this is why does racial like diversity sensitivity training largely fail which is what most of the research shows and it's not to say that the ideas you know put forth in diversity sensitivity training aren't valuable in bringing these things to awareness and all that stuff and and talking about our internal bias and systemic racism and all that stuff it's important but it doesn't it doesn't work And although I'm not an expert in this area, I can't help but think to what we've just talked about and all the experiences we've discussed here, which is that that deep human connection. And that when we sit through a training, it's there's no human connection. We're able to put on the facade, whatever facade we want, and work at a superficial level. And if we're going to, you know, work our way through this, almost subconscious bias, it has to come like at a much deeper level. So there needs to be depth behind it. But, you know, the paradox there is there can't be so much depth that then it colors our our worldview so that it's the only lens that we have to see the world through. Because as Jojo said, we don't see the world through, hey, you know, you're you have red hair like we need to be on a team etc to figure this out so i think it's just this complex interplay and any simple solution or simple lens isn't gonna work so quick question what about you man yeah yeah yeah. go ahead dive in so i guess first thing for you guys have you guys ever been through racial sensitivity training yeah, I have. I mean, I, I, I at the time, I think it was called like diversity and inclusion training. Um, so at, then I had, I don't know. I don't know if it's the same thing or not, but there was 80% focus on race and 10% focus on sex and 10% yes. focus on yep. Yes. And that, in fact, is the problem. That's why it doesn't work. Because, again, we're not connecting on that human level. The connection is... This is more of a race training. It's it's not really a diversity and inclusion training. It's what to what do you think when you see a black man? What do you think when you see a white person, an Asian person? There there's no connection in those trainings outside of what we see with the eyes. If we had more conversations of yeah, what do you believe? You know, what kind of things do you like? And we start to like we could play this game right now between the three of us. And that would be the best diversity and inclusion training, although we don't have a a female or someone else on 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 the call. But I just that that in itself is a problem is that those trainings are are race dominant, meaning 
They are dominated by the color of someone's skin that you see across the room for you and not about what they, who they truly are as a person. But what would you say, so again, because so much of the, the, the conversation is being driven by like this Ibram Kendi school of thought. So what would you say to someone that says, well, yeah, Jojo, but like race is the predominant thing. And we need to focus there because if we don't, then things are going to continue in the same direction. Um, and again, like what I really want to harp on for myself, because I'm clearly trying to figure this out on the fly. I wish I, I wish I could. I can't. Is like I, there's so much gray area paradox, whatever you want to call it, between like denying this stuff or choosing not to pay attention to it or making everything about it always. Yeah. So what I would say to that is that, first of all, I'll just be clear, like race does exist. Like we can't, <laughs> we're not in a situation where we can just take race back. You know what I mean? Um, but what we can do is we can change the mindset. When we're having these conversations on race, we need to include ethnicity or, or, or culture into those conversations. Because I think at some point in time, we have to realize that we are more alike than we are different. And that's that's where we have our disputes today. That's where we have our social injustice going on today because we see our differences purely as, as skin color. And yes, there that happens. And when I say that that happens is that like racism happens in our country. There's no doubt about that. And that's because we don't realize that we are more of the same. Like I have to, if, if you were to say, Hey, I have a friend, his name is Jojo. Do you call, do you say Jojo's black or do you say Jojo is African American? Are you asking me? Yeah. Me? I'd say, Hey, this is true. I'd say like, Hey, I have a friend named Jojo. He lives in Charlottesville. He's a performance coach and he just had twins. To be honest, like, it, like race wouldn't even come up. Right. Well, how, how, how normal is that, do you think? Um, but see, to me, it is pretty normal. I don't know, because like... Yeah. I, okay, so back to your question. If I were to call you... like, If you were just to say, like, what race is JoJo, I'd say black. Mm-hmm. I would not say African-American. So that answers your question. Right. But like, your, your preceding question is, I don't think that that would be a part of how I'd introduce you, because... Clearly, this conversation is about race, but the vast majority of our interaction is about being a new dad, me feeling both happy and terrible for the fact that you now have twins. <laughs> sorry, sorry to all the women out there, and um, in in like me sending me you know videos of me deadlifting, yeah. which is what I do to all my good friends. So it, it's not like a part of our right. relationship right. unless we're gonna truly carve out time to talk about it like now. But and the difference there, Brad, is that we have a relationship. There are so many times where I am with, you know, if if I go and I, I visit a different gym or a recreation center and I have two white guys that are with me, one of the white guys introduces me, um, or he refers to me, I'm not present, it will be he is an African American versus he is an American. He is a black American versus an African American. 
I think we need to find a way to realize that we have, and this goes on, goes on a whole different topic and it just popped in my head of black versus African-American. I, I think we need to get comfortable with just saying black as a description, not as a, in, in reference to race, but the color of his skin is black and we relate this way. We have these commonalities. Ah, that's a really good nuance. I hadn't thought of that. Cause like African-American is like putting a well, my grammar is going to be wrong, like an adjective or like a subtype of American, which is not true. Like you're just an American and you're black. Right. Like I'm an American and I'm bald. Steve's an American and lucky him. He doesn't have kids yet. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. Just kidding. Kids are great. We're going to get Jojo. We're going to get freaking reamed by our wives. (laughs) Or at least I am. I don't know why I just implicated you in saying we're. Hey, don't bring me down. (laughs) I promise. That's not me being racist. That's just me being a douche. All right. Um, Anyways, (laughs) I love my son. He's You know, I I love this conversation because it it reminds me. So a couple weeks ago with my um, college cross country team, we had a conversation on race. And again, if it was over zoom 90 minutes really worthwhile suggest doing that for other teams out there but it's interesting because i we have about i don't know 40 percent of our kids are hispanic 40 percent are white 20 percent are black on, on the team as a whole if i was to ballpark it but it was interesting because i think this distinction of culture and race like came up because like one of our our kids on the team who's black like brought up that he grew up where he was essentially the only, he was the only black kid in his school. And then when he, you know, got out of that situation and went somewhere else, like he was labeled as the white black kid. And then we had that same conversation on some Hispanic kids who grew up on the border town on like being quote unquote, like real Hispanic versus more white Hispanic. And I think this, there's this interplay that Jojo has, has gotten at and you just got at it in this black versus African American that I think is something that isn't addressed or talked about. And there's a lot more nuance here than we, we kind of, you know, uh, give credit for. And when we just lump everyone together. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the difference of, you know, I have an athlete that I work with. He is Jamaican, like on the surface, you would think he was black. But when you talk to him, you hear his accent like he is Jamaican. And I've known from being around and interacting and having um, really close relationships with both folks who are Jamaican or African, they are Jamaican. They are African. They are not black. You know, and that's, that's a strong distinction for them simply because of the cultural differences, things that they accept in their culture, you know, we don't accept in, you know, black culture or black American culture. Um, The things that we may do or the things that we've gone through, they would say, well, we would never have went through that. We would have revolted. You know, we don't put up with that crap where I'm from. Mm. Ah, that's really interesting. Um, Yeah. I mean, it, it, everything that both of you are saying makes a lot of sense. And it's like for so many of the complex, very important issues in life, 
it's not like either or it's kind of like a wrestling with a both and and here you know maybe where i'm coming out my brain loves to like cut things up and conceptualize them make them black and white and structure like i'm a former mckinsey consultant turned nonfiction writer of course that's what my brain loves but this is like you can't do that it's like race does exist black people are different than white people because one has less pigment in their skin. Sadly, in this country, race has led to all kinds of disparities. And race can't be the only thing because it's not. And if it is, not only is it not going to be fun, but it's not going to work in service of the end goal, which is getting rid of racism. So it's like you need race to be a thing to get rid of racism, but it can't, but like only to a point. And then it's like trying to be super aware of like, well, what's that point? Um, I don't know. Does that summary make any sense? See, I, it, like I'm trying to summarize because that's what my brain that was, does. That was, that, was actually, that was actually pretty good. I'll, I'll give you a lot of credit on that one um, because it, it, and is the appropriate term. Racism does exist. Race does exist. Right. And you have to acknowledge the cultural differences. We can't get rid of racism if, or race if it doesn't exist already. You know, um, so I, I think that's a really good, good summary, um, summary of those points. I'm curious to know, can what was the name of the book or the author that you mentioned a couple of times? Uh, the, the author is named Ibram X. Kendi. Mm-hmm. And the book is called How to Be an Anti-Racist. So in that book, is his main point that we all need to acknowledge race and racism? Like get rid of the, get rid of the thought that it does not exist? There's so much in that book that I don't even want to like try to summarize. So I this this is not gonna do it justice, but my interpretation of that book is him saying that it's not enough just not to be racist. You have to be an anti-racist. That's one point. Another key point that I took away from that book is that you can do a racist act without being a racist person, which I think is so important and so true and so valuable. The third thing that I took away from that book and also just from Kendi on Twitter and in interviews, is that he very much seems to be pushing a narrative that race is in everything and affects everything, which may be true, but that race is the thing that we should always focus on. And that's where I probably diverge from him. And I think this conversation is like reiterating the divergence. So it's like I'm with him 90% of the way, but that last 10%, I'm not quite with him. It doesn't mean I'm right. I might be wrong. Um, But it seems like it's that last 10% where there's so much focus, especially like in liberal progressive circles. It's like, well, everything is race. Everything should be racial sensitivity training. And to question that makes you a racist versus the flip side extreme is like, we don't need any racial sensitivity training. I'm colorblind. I'm not racist. And I think that there's clearly like this vast middle ground and area of nuance that we don't like playing in. I love that colorblind excuse. 
I, I really do. That that one that one makes me chuckle a little bit. I'm sorry. Well, yeah, but again, but you say that, and I think let's unpack this because I think a lot of people would be like, "Well, isn't that the goal to be colorblind?" No, you can't help what you see. You know, I I see a white person, I see a black person, and then I see other shades in between there. Like that's that that is a reasonable uh, physical trait that you can mention, but. The problem becomes when we use that and attribute that to actual race. Right. Yeah. That's a really good way of putting it. Because, yeah, because like as you say that, I'm thinking like, well, like I'm not bald blind. Like I see someone that's bald <laughs> and I'm like, that dude's bald. But then I don't tell myself 19 stories about the person because he's bald. Right. It's- but like the goal isn't to get bald blind. It, it's that next step, right? It's it's not, we shouldn't like not see, it's that next step to the judgment around it and the bias that comes in on the judgment of like, oh, I see this person and because I see them, I see that he's bald, that must mean he's A, B, C, D, E, F, G. It's that Perfect. Step. Perfect, Steve. Right. In my case, it's because that he's bald, he must be a phenomenal thinker, <laughs> a world-class power lifter and the only bald man sexier than the rock (laughs) with the exception of jojo Um, we have taken a turn gentlemen we have taken a turn man that's been a theme while you've been out jojo i've been taking a lot of turns i think 2020 is just catching up to me i'm doing everything i can to stay on point but um man humor has been my saving grace over the past few weeks well, fellas, uh, this is probably a pretty good place to wrap it up before I turn too far down a road that we're not going to be able to save ourselves from. Um, I love you both. Thank you. This is a really good conversation. Um, even if no one listens to it or learns from it, I feel really lucky to have had it. I feel like I got to wrestle with things and, and learned a lot. Um, so appreciate both of you. And, uh, for listeners, you know, this is this is a little bit different than our usual more performance mental health based podcast. Um, so we're curious to hear what you think. We're not going to never do this kind of thing, whether you like it or not. Um, but if you do like it and you want more of it, let us know, and um, it's something that we can we can definitely do some more of. If, if I if I could add to that, Brad, you know, for for those who think this has nothing to do with performance, I would argue that it has everything to do with performance. Um, you know, especially just thinking of ourselves as as humans when things are affecting us mentally it it just carries over into everything else that we do in life and so it it truly does have an effect on our performance just look at some of the the athletes out there who may have underperformed or just decided to sit out because they were afraid that they would not be able to perform up to the level of expectations thank you jojo you are right i am wrong <laughs> Steve, anything um, anything to add and close us out on? No, I just want to thank both of you. As I said, I really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot. And I think most importantly, I wrestled with it. And, you know, I'm reminded, since again, I'm the science nerd in this group, I'm reminded of this study that found that 
when making tough decisions, when you are in a diverse group, you tend to be more thoughtful because there is slightly more discomfort versus feeling completely comfortable, which makes you wrestle with thoughts and be, you know, more thoughtful with them. And I think that if anything has come out of this, it's the need to have conversations like these, to have spaces where we can have conversations like these. And as someone who has the ability to do that, and I know a lot of our listeners do, it's how do you intentionally set up for your workers, for your athletes, for who you coach, whatever it is, for your family maybe even, how do you set up the place where you can have these difficult conversations and use that discomfort to your advantage to get to a place where there's that deeper understanding, which is necessary? Love it. All right. That is our closing. Um, again, thanks listeners for joining us for the conversation this week. Uh, if you like the show and appreciate what we do, please be sure to give us a five-star rating, leave a review on Apple Podcast. Um, I sound like a broken record, but it's true. Those types of things go a long way in helping um, us compete with some of the other shows that the algorithm loves. And we want the algorithm to love our show because we think we're doing pretty good stuff. So appreciate you all and we'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.